Good morning. My name is Cornelius, and it's 8 o'clock a.m., and it's um, the 30th of July. Um, This morning, I was feeling fairly calm, um, but I also was feeling a little emotional, um, particularly due to mourning the loss of a life of our nature community, a member of the nature community, meaning the parks and the people who frequent the parks. Uh, unfortunately, a member of that community, her life was taken along with her her dog. And, you know, this happened a couple of days ago um, at the park uh, or in in her neighborhood here in Midtown and I give uh, prayers out to the family families uh, of that of that lost life and you know it was uh, you know in my mind to you know pay attention to that because this is a life and this is not a white life this is not a female life this is not uh, she's different than me and what could I possibly learn from this experience? Um, this is a, we're all together and we all have to learn how to trust one another. Uh, and you can't trust if we stay away from areas that we consider to be dangerous. And, you know, we can't go around living in fear. So I really encourage people, despite the violence that's happening, around the nation is to just stay strong and focus on your own energies and live with faith and trust in God that he is protecting you and he's putting his um, devoted angels and disciples uh, and deities out into the world, into the ethers that are out here walking with us and protecting us. And you have to get that in your heart and your spirit because we don't got really nothing out here that's really assuring our safety out here anymore. And we need our Lord and Savior to assure us that he's still there and his benevolence and his omnipotence is, is forever uh, working in the lives of, of individual human beings. Um, and we have to believe that. So moving on from that, uh, today is going to be a fabulous morning. Despite it all, and I'm gonna start uh, on my next segment: um, how old beliefs led to unbeliefs. On page 27, my carnal nature was manifested in the physical by my behavior and attitudes. It was. It was that narcissistic belief that though I did not have it all, I would convince myself that I did. But eventually, the sin of delusion became worse than the actual act. How could a sinful belief be as sinful than committing the act of sin? If I look in society, white people have avoided karmic ramifications for invoking the belief blacks are inferior race abhorring us on a mental level yet they are allowed to continue economically powered 
privilege and they remain undeterred and unprovoked, never willing to seek their higher selves in order to change this narrative. If God shows mercy to the belief of racism, why would he, on the same token, make known that he punishes a prideful heart? Is this discrepancy a way to provoke or to humble us? If God would allow slavery on a people he claimed to love, yet allow the capturer to, to maintain his prideful heart while holding the slave subject to judgment, I should be allowed to think highly of myself as the world seeks to hold me in psychic servitude. When I realized God was slowly taking from me my only protection against the trauma of being forced to lie down and wag my tail like a dog, I should at least get a doggy treat for this show, show dog performance. To think it is a greater sin to feel contrary to the denigration history consigns me to. This God appears to be like the devil, and I was more than willing to fight God if he thought I was going to ineptly sit back while chastening my endurance of raising myself beyond the encroachment of great antiquity. If God won't let me live my life unapologetically, then I would make my noble cause law, etched in bone, and nothing will be able to scratch it out of my head, for the only alternative to pridefulness is despair, which for me is the ultimate sin. To feel free yet not to be allowed to imbibe the inheritance is the sin of our soul. Yet I am made to feel shameful for having a prideful demeanor. I genuinely feel in order to avoid suffering of shame for being the descendants of slaves, I needed to believe that I could be everything the world says that I couldn't. By breaking out of the ensnared servitude of low expectations consigned to my kind. What I was not willing to do was put all my faith and trust in a God, nor did I have any reason to go searching for him or any level, especially if the condition was letting go of my perceived reality, even if it was delusional or sinful. What I was not willing to acknowledge was that perhaps it was my pride that was in my affliction. Where was the middle ground to progress? Or does all my help come from the Lord? All these questions activated this subtle nudge in my senses that I could not identify nor ignore. I was never a true believer of God, nor Jesus Christ for that matter, so I was curious to what this feeling beckoned. Life had been consistently disappointing, and my philosophy was to seek pleasure and avoid pain at any cost. I walked the streets of New York with the notion that I only had myself. Though this was a lonely way to exist in the world, it was all that I had and I'd be damned if I allowed the world to take me from me. I had no idea that I had been taken a long time ago and replaced with it. It being the predication of relative happiness. This was how the delusions grew a limb and the life of its own, hanging off me like a cancerous tumor. Four months had passed since I had gotten out of the army Having no clear direction, no clear compass of where I was going to li going in life, wandering around the streets of Harlem, getting lost in whatever excitement awaited me. One place that suited my fancy was going to the Red Rooster. The Red Rooster was a spot to parlay and be social, and it was there that I met Terry Tate. Holding my martini glass daintily in front of me, feeling that I had finally made it, I could care less about his invitation to attend an introduction to Buddhism meeting at his apartment in Harlem. 
Though I casually agreed to come, I forgot all about him and his meeting soon after. A week later, Terry reached out to me, confirming my RSVP, so I reluctantly confirmed. Being loyal to my word, I hesitantly met Terry at his place on the day of. He greeted me at the door and walked me inside, where ten other people were crammed inside his tiny living room, all sitting in fold-out chairs facing a wooden box with Chinese letters written on it. They all stared intensely at the box, with their palms pressed firmly together with rosary-looking beads in their hands. A couple of guests casually observed me walk in and passed a polite smile, signaling for me to take a seat. I took a glance around the room and took note that Terry had some diverse friends from all different racial backgrounds, but they all chanted in unison with one voice, which sounded beautiful to my ears. I would learn five minutes later that they were chanting Nam Yo Ho Renge Kyo, and the practice was known as Buddhism, and they called their organization the Kobe. They all seemed to have and speak in a way that conveyed to me that they had the key to finding lasting happiness, something that I had been searching for, so I was all ears. It did not take much convincing to me to join. I figured I wanted happiness, and they had it, and they were not holding a martini glass saying that they were happy like I perpetrated. On an icy cold February evening in 2016, I received what they referred to as a gohanzan, a calligraphic mandala scroll with Chinese and Sanskrit letters written on it. I was introduced to it. Uh, I was instructed to take it home and chant the exact words that I had previously seduced my ears. They gave me a little book called the Sutra, and I was to recite Damuku each morning and night. I chanted Damuku, Nam Yoharengeko, then after Damuku, I recited Gonyo, a literary formalized service of veneration and worship which is the recitation of the 2nd and 16th chapter of the Sutra. Reciting Daimoku and Ganyo would allow the tree of my life to strengthen and grow as a cumulative result of my continuing practice. The idea was that my life would one day become vast like a great tree, and with daily practice I would develop a, start, a state of life of indestructible happiness. I was to perform this twice a day, ideally morning and evening. This explained, they explained that I would feel more in tune with the universe after some time and eventually find the key to happiness. I was enthusiastic in the beginning, vowing to learn everything that I could about this new and exciting new practice, but paradoxically my life would change, uh, my life would change forever. Taking my new gohonzon home, I recited it and created an altar on the dresser, covering the top with an African pattern tablecloth to accentuate the altar and placing the wooden butsudan cabinet on top of it. I added a fortune tree, a Chinese gong bell and I hit after that I would hit uh, before and after my chant. I also burned incense and candles during the ceremony. After a few weeks, I began signing... Um, signing up to participate in Kobe activities, which took me out of my comfort zone. One part of being happy was feeling belonged, so I was happy that I was now a part of a community that did not revolve around military life. Being a member of the Kobe gave me a foundation to feel confident again and be social and be the social butterfly that I used to be before the army destroyed my personality. Buddhism teaches happiness on an intrinsically profound level and emphasizes value creation as the premise of extending compassion to others through action. 
I love this philosophy and felt it aligned with my personal values and aspirations. I was not worshiping the Gohanzen, but I was seeing it as a medium to get what I needed from the universe. I was good at mastering the aesthetics of this mysterious practice, yet the chanting part eluded my comprehension to the point where I was only going through the motions and not feeling that I was getting out of it what was intended. I chanted my heart out, singing buoyantly and courageously, letting, setting clear goals. After recitation, the Ganyo, for a couple of months, I started to feel something rising and ascending into the heavens, carrying the message of my newfound goals of not being left in the dark. I wanted to be free, and I demanded this clarity for my life. I needed to understand what was blocking my path. I was not aware that finding happiness would mean that I needed to start looking at my drinking habits as a problem something that I had lied to myself about as the ugliness of my drinking was camouflaged with the finest wines on the menu and presented in decorative wine glasses that gave the illusion that I, I was like everyone else. I figured if I were not drinking out of a brown paper bag that I could still go on thinking that my drinking was normal and I wasn't an alcoholic. This became the lie that I told myself as I sat in front of my altar the incense smoke clouding the atmosphere the aroma of dragons blood oil filled the room accentuating the spiritual ambiance now that i was a buddhist and a part of the kobe i did not feel so alone in a big world in a big city and most importantly i managed to evade christianity in search of a new freedom and way to happiness at first i thought the nudge in my heart was calling me back to the christian church because i grew up as a boy in the pentecostal church and only knew this denomination to be where to find healing. But there were questions concerning its validity, which caused me never to go back. And those questions were fueled by disgust of the tyrant and father, the son, and the Holy Spirit being filtered through a lens that was out of focus, projecting one big fuzzy shadow that seemed to show up in every picture that I took. So what was the point in using an out-of-date camera when I had my own impressions to rely on. Buddhism was different from other monotheistic religions. I tiptoed around Christianity, but never read the Bible thoroughly. I read books on the Kabbalah, but I had only scratched the surface of my understanding, giving me this warm and fuzzy feeling, making me quite spiritually ambidextrous. Whatever kept me from being thrown into that hideous lake of fire, I was open to it. Raphael Patai, writes in Hebrew goddess that every man of Israel wants truly and fully with all his heart and all his soul due to the natural love that is hidden in the heart of all of Israel to cleave to God and not to separate and be cut off and separated God forbid from the unification of oneness due to my self-diagnosed attention deficit disorder nothing that I had ever studied held my attention and the fear of being indoctrinated into some cult gave me goosebumps. All I had was this natural love for something that I did not understand. Yet I sensed the cleaving started when I had nowhere to turn but up. And the cleave never lost its grip on me. Nudging my heartstrings for that I am grateful because I was lost and didn't know it. I had built an impenetrable shell around me not letting anyone break it on the account of being accepted. I learned to question the motives and the intent of others when they did not appear to have my best interests. Then I questioned my own motives. 
What was my purpose for moving to New York? What was I searching for? These bigger-than-life archetype questions attracted me to Buddhism, and I would soon discover the answer. Chantinam Yohorenge Kyo, which means devotion to the mystic law of the universe, is a philosophy completely new to me. The power of those words seemed to help unlock all the skeletons in my closet. The skeletons caused deep-seated pain and heartache in my life. I had no idea that I had reached a breaking point where my faith in God was becoming extinct and virtually non-existent. Though on the outside, I was showing to the public eye one side of myself. I was a hurt, lonely soul on the inside. I felt no one wanted to hear what I had to say, even at the Buddhist meetings, where we as members can share our life's experiences and obstacles. Yes, yet, I felt that they could care less about my problems. I had such a distorted view of people that set in distrust in certain groups of people, particularly white and Asians. Though I was not practicing Buddhism, I did now practicing Buddhism. I did not feel foreign. I did not feel a foreign practice that originated in another country could help elucidate the visceral experiences played out in black people's lives. I created the belief that the members only spoke of relations in the same colorblind and detached way politicians dealt with race. I became annoyed by the leader's lack of regard for, for racial issues, choosing not to engage secular issues, but providing solace by encouraging chanting to improve our lives individually, while blacks were systematically picked off the plantation, proving our constitution was broken and our liberties were routinely, routinely violated every day as we endured civil disorder. This showed me that there was no, never any intentions of allowing blacks to belong in a larger society, nor were there intentions of opening positions of power for us. I looked through the facade of equality within the organization and read into the disproportionate hierarchy of racial superiority with leadership positions held not by blacks, but by the Asians and the whites. Having a racial hangup would not be my biggest challenge, but believing that the leaders held no evil intentions the organization would have to prove how love and compassion combat systemic racism, beginning with equal representation. Though I would always have this hidden inclination, there was a bigger meaning behind my fickle feelings. My challenge would be to let go of the grudge and to have, that has hindered me from dealing with my frustrations about the people who think themselves better than me. I was ready to learn how joy emerged from within, seeing it as a spiritual experience, not a physical one. Just as the Jews believe that they are the chosen people for enduring their in, in providence with God. Dasaku Akeda, the president of the Soka Gakkai Buddhist sect, writes in the opening of the eyes, people who suffer from the earthly desires like jealousy or hate, which cannot be alleviated by means of science or social institutions, these differences must have fundamental causes. Therefore, Humanity, humanity's problems cannot be solved without a thorough investigation into the nature of life. Not feeling begrudged in life was my reason for chanting and discover my, to discover my fullest potentials in life. For that would mean getting to the root of all the causes in my life. But in order to do that, I needed to understand the root functions of Buddhism.
Chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo implies happiness should be our most concern in human life. To find Buddhahood, we only must realize the life force in ourselves and everyone else rather than the opinions of learned priests. Unlike Christianity, Buddhism claims to be truly accountable to the individual and not the other way around. Sudamuro Makagushi, the founder of one of the Buddhist sects, the Soka Kaioku Kaikai, wrote of his life force of being true to self. We can change nothing unless our feet are firmly planted on the ground. Knowing myself and having a stable foundation are the obstacles I struggle with. He expounds, realizing peace and happiness for humanity is the fundamental aim of Buddhism. Spreading love and happiness to others is like lighting the candle with another, opposed to seeing another's lit from a distance and then deciding that the light to light the candle of your own. In such case, there is no companionship, no community, nor continuity. And no obligation to protect what, after all, is only the product of our own efforts. I put this lighting a candle philosophy to the test in my daily life and engaged in what the sutra called the Kosenrufu, the dissemination of the Lotus Sutra as a springboard to leading other people. I wouldn't normally approach closer to that light by valuing them as human beings. My conversations with strangers began the healing process to my own frayed temperament regarding people. I decided to calm my ego down and be patient with being disgruntled and annoyed. I was at times scared what could come out of me considering that I have been living in darkness for so long. It was only my sheer and honest desire to transform my life that kept me coming back. So this same problem, it was a part of me and I did not know how to function with it lingering there, taunting me. It made me sad that I had no control over my own ego. That seemed more of a disease of the soul. I know it was not hate. I did not hate people. I simply could not wrap my head around the injustice of this world. To see adversity and only be able to kill it with a passive smile. I had fallen into a trap of stereotyping every racial group as being racist, but was too afraid to confront my own poisonous thinking habits by opening my mind and heart for the individual. I saw how my thinking had been con- conditioned by the environment and cultural habits and religious beliefs. And though I didn't agree with how we are socially conditioned, I figured there has to be a way to love my fellow man and live in peace with him without being like him. The first challenge was to control my general beliefs. My second challenge was to see people as one, no matter who they are. Plato writes in Republic, good people, when young, appear to be simple and easy victims to the impositions of bad men because they have not in their own consciousness examples of like passions with the wicked. His knowledge of what injustice is should be acquired late in life not by observing it as innate of his soul, but by long practice in discerning his baneful nature as it exists out of himself in the souls of others. Buddhism teaches fairness and equality through love, or there would be no use for the practice in my life. 
Buddhism makes itself accountable to me, revealing itself in the particularities of everyday experiences in my life. I had been struggling with the dilemma of my own self-assertion, but after a 30-minute chanting session, the word arrogant popped into my head. I did not want my happiness to be determined by the requisites of society, yet what I saw as prideful confidence could have easily been mistaken for defense arrogance. Nichiren Daishonin, a Japanese Buddhist priest, writes in the writings of Daishonin, Nichiren Daishonin, Arrogance is indicative of insecurities because an arrogant person bases their moods and values on praise for them. A truly confident person does not need the approval of others as their happiness is internal. Sutamuru Makagushi published in a book called The Geography of Human Life where he refers to the idea of homeland as having a strong ethnic and cultural heritage centered in a geographical area. He posits this was a sure way of recognizing that the history and deep cultural associations is intact. This made me think about myself as an African-American and whether I was a part of a long cultural and historical heritage or lineage. Could pride and arrogance be influenced by my geographical heritage? I felt troubled by the geographical era in black history. Even Buddhism can be traced to an original homeland. Does this make my practice inauthentic to my cultural heritage? In 2008, President Barack Hussein Obama, during a speech, explained in his post-tribal declaration that telling, telling of his multi-ethnic family tree how this assembling of hundreds of people forged a more perfect union. The union it possessed proposes is ultimately more a miniature cosmo picture of the globe. What Makagushi was trying to express opened a much studied dialogue in my head about the idea of what it means to be at home in the world, what it means to be human, whether it's being a being of a member of a species or only a member of a religion, a nation, or a tribe. I found this to be the most fascinating as my brain is wrecked every day dealing with the place dealing with my place in the world which has influenced this false sense of confidence which has morphed into arrogance was i a part of this nation and if so why did it feel like that i was a stranger was it important that i go back to africa give that giving that it is my homeland and where my lineage originates my nature manifests through my behavior and attitude it is narcissistic belief that if I didn't have it all, that I would convince myself that I did, whereby creating the sin of delusion. Whereby, this is worse than the actual act of being arrogant. What started out as a defense mechanism quickly morphed into a type of delusion that has disconnected me from the reality of what is important to my life and the universe. Since I began chanting, many obstacles has arisen in my life. And it has discouraged me. I decided as a, as a response that I would stay home and reflect on all that has happened. The good, the bad, and the ugly in the year 2015. I determined to make 2016 better, better because life has always been about evolving and moving further. And because I know that I cannot abandon my old life without exchanging it for a new one. I can no longer live life linearly but going full circle, 
returning as a more matured and refined and confident man. But it is hard painting a good picture when you don't have a good mental image of that world. I was beginning to see how the demands required my destiny. Required by destiny were not coming from outside, but from within me. The sense of being oppressed was only a prelude to the transform transforming a once believed inescapable reality into a psychic situation answerable only to a higher will. Some lessons are learned better after the smoke has cleared. This smoke came in the form of my need for praise and attention, and as the dust settled, the aftermath appeared calamitous. I want to thank you guys for listening today and stay tuned for the next segment. Remember, keep your energy high and have a wonderful day. Ta-ta.